Thank you. It's interesting um, being introduced because uh, when I'm in the States, it's not unusual to be introduced as being from New Zealand. When I'm in New Zealand, introduced being from the States, somebody said that in spirit-filled church life, we just kind of had this belief system that the further away somebody travels to be in a place, the more anointed they are. And especially if they have to cross salt water. <laughs> so, uh, probably not very spiritual what I just said, but it's <laughs> probably true. Thank you for being here this evening. Mm. Um, at the back of the hall, there are some books, and um, some of them, some of you have read a little what happens during revival, and we brought with us from the states copies of the book, The Glory Factor. Our newest book is also back there called The Gospel Factor, and. Um, One of the individuals who had written um, responses on some of the other books made the observation. He said, I think that that may be the most powerful book that you've written yet. And um, I appreciate when people feel like God uses something that we do to speak into the lives of people. Uh, I, love, I love the move of the Spirit of God. I am uh, hopelessly hooked. Uh, I am a junkie with no apologies, but it does take both wings of the bird. And we not only need encounters with the Lord, which we desperately need encounters with him, but we also need to be communicating to others uh, that which is the word of the Lord and able to share both the hope that we have and why we have that hope. At the end of the day, it becomes more than your story and my story becomes his story. And uh, I will say to people that your opinion is just as valid as my opinion. But all opinions have to bow before his. And what he declares is. Amen. And uh, so uh, uh, Pastor Seth made an observation in this book. Uh, he said, having had the privilege of standing alongside Michael in hundreds of of revival services. I've seen God use him to harvest and disciple and equip thousands. The principles he shares in the book are simple, yet profound. Thank you, Seth. I wish I'd have said that. Hey, um, I'm getting messed up this evening, watching you get messed up. I um, I love history, but I don't want to live there. Somebody said that the only thing we really seem to learn from history is that nobody learns from history. And that we seem to keep repeating, you know, the same dumb mistakes that uh, either the generations before us did or sometimes we repeat the same dumb mistakes that we already made. And so, but I, I do like to take a look at history to both encourage me on that which God can do. 
to challenge me with what is necessary if I'm going to see God do that again. Uh, I said, I, I don't want to live in yesterday. I'm grateful. I'm grateful for the stories that God has allowed my wife and I to have been a part of, to have witnessed, to have seen God do. But I love the language that somebody said to me here in New Zealand. And they made this statement to me. They said, you know, they said, we've had Americans come here before. And they've told us stories. And sometimes in the stories, it sounded like they were saying, look what God has done for me. Too bad he hasn't done it for you. And they said, but when you've told us stories, that's not what we've heard. What we've heard when you tell us a story is come and go with us. Because that's what we want. You know, as far back as 1999, something like that, which is before some people here were born, which is becoming increasingly depressing. <laughs> we had been invited to the nation of the Philippines to preach. And uh, just before going, to the nation of the Philippines to preach. I was preaching in the state of Kentucky, and I get a phone call from uh, the missionary uh, in, uh, in the Philippines, and he said, you need, to, you need to call Pastor so-and-so, and you need to talk to him, because he was just here, and you need to talk with him so he can kind of prepare you for what it is you're walking into. And so I called the pastor in question, and I said, I guess I need to talk with you. And, and so we set a, an appointment. He said, we'll need at least an hour, which I discovered later when he's talking, that is short. And um, so I called him, and we began conversation. He began to tell me these stories of what they had seen God do, including in some places where they had seen 10% of a city respond to a salvation altar call. That's pretty impressive, you know, to see 10% of a city asked Jesus to come into their lives. And he's describing stories of his 10-year-old son in a meeting walking up to people in wheelchairs and just sticking his hand out saying, in the name of Jesus, and grabbing them and pulling them out of the chair. So I'm listening to this stuff, and I'm having two different reactions. Part of me is going, wow, that's awesome, cool. Part of me is going, oh, no. Because I was thinking this, I'm going over there next. And when I get there, I know I should have this faith, but I'm thinking when I get there, they are going to expect me to do what he did. And I said to the Lord, Lord, I don't have that type of anointing. Uh, that's not the way you use me. So, Lord, I got a really, really good idea. Why don't you send him back? I'll stay here in the States and I'll preach his meetings and he can go over there and preach my meetings. It's a win-win. The Lord was not impressed. <laughs> and I said to the Lord, why am I going anyway? And somebody said that God answers prayer three ways. Yes, no, and You've got to be kidding. 
Do you ever pray in any of those last type of prayers? Some, you're sure some angel scratching his head and saying, what did she say? And I think I was in one of those moments. And I said, why am I going? But the Lord actually responded to me. I'm walking out the door to walk into the evening meeting I was preaching, and the Lord spoke to my heart and said, because you are so average. It's an interesting thing to have God call you average. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, well, Lord, you didn't have to put me in the top 10%, but, you know, average? <laughs> you know, couldn't you, like, upscale that a little bit? And, uh, and he said, when you get there, I want you to tell them that. Right. You want me to go to the other side of the earth, and you want me to tell those people that your speaker, who you've brought in from the other side of the earth, is average. And I said, God, we don't do that sort of stuff. And the Lord said, I want you to tell them that what they're going to see when you're with them is what they're going to see in their ministries when you're gone. Because it's not about you. It's about me. And, and, I, and I love to, to tell some of the stories out of what God did in those meetings in the Philippines and some of the ongoing fruit. One of those was a, a young man, young pastor who, I guess I laid hands on him. I don't know. I, I laid hands on everything else, so I guess I probably laid hands on him. He goes back to his church, and the next Sunday, it breaks loose. Now, he's standing on the platform, and he hears the Lord say to him, when you take the microphone, I'm going to take over. But God did not explain what that meant. So the young man walks to the pulpit, he picks up the microphone, and immediately is slain in the spirit. So here he is, the pastor of the church, and he's on the floor. And there's nobody left in charge. And when he comes to, the entire church has run to the altar. And uh, crying out to God, he said it launched them into three weeks of nightly services. And uh, revival broke out. And uh, in the next year, his church tripled in size. And then in the next two years, it doubled again in size. And he's now pastoring, I think, like the third largest church in his city of half a million people. And just this thing that, that, that God did in his, in, in his life. But the Lord said, you're just average. And I like to tell the stories because I want you to know this. God isn't looking for superstars. God is simply looking for people who are open. Who was, was talking about the dog? Was that you? Was you talking about the dog? Yeah, I think it was. Somebody. Or, or the fight. It's about fighting. My dad used to say this. It's not the size of the dog that's in the fight. It's the size of the fight that's in the dog. It's not 
that you're the biggest or the greatest, but it is something that God puts inside of you. Average, but you believe that there is someone who's called you, who's bigger than average. And that the things that God wants to do in you and through you, you know, the, the writer wrote the song, it is no secret what God can do. What he's done for others, he'll do for you. That when we come to him with that sense of expectation, and I'll tag on that a moment, when, when the revival broke out in Terre Haute, Indiana, and uh, we were supposed to be there for three days, had gone five, and uh, we left, my wife and I left to join Pastor Seth in Germany for meetings. And the pastor of the church took his team, his leadership team, staff, and they drove down to Mobile, Alabama, where revival was breaking out with uh, Nathan Morris and uh, John Kilpatrick's church there in, in Mobile. And the pastor said, he said, he walked into the meeting, and he said, immediately I said to the Lord, Lord, this is the same presence. This isn't something different. This is exactly the same presence that we have been experiencing the last five days with, with Michael and Linda. And the Lord said, there's actually two differences. He said, number one is this. There is no sense of expectation in your church. Where in this place, people walk into this meeting with a sense of expectancy. And because they have a sense of expectancy, I'm doing things in the midst. There needs to come expectancy into your church. Now, he didn't say anything to his people, but it's interesting that after he asked us if we would consider coming back to Terre Haute and delaying our return to New Zealand, that like the second service into those or second weekend of those extended meetings, a prophetic word came that spoke about a spirit of expectation. That when that expectancy begins to rise within us, that God has something that he can begin to work with. When we have this sense of hope and sense of faith and sense of expectation that this is because God does, and I love this phrase, exceeding abundantly above and beyond. The expectation does not limit God. That's the launching pad. You see, we, we think of the expectation, that's the ceiling. But God says, I'm going to do beyond that. The expectation is where we start. Then the Lord said, secondly, he said, there's a strong religious spirit in your city that has to be broken. Now, I made a couple of notes to myself a moment ago. When I was thinking about history, I remember saying to the Lord, this was somewhere toward the end of the 90s. 96 had launched my wife and I into what had been the most phenomenal season of our life. About a year and a half into that, spiritual opposition arose. You are never going to see God doing something without finding opposition from the adversary. Because he has discovered in most cases, if he just puts up a little resistance, we'll fold. And so he just began to give some opposition. And, and, and for the first, like, year and a half, it was just like fun. 
It's like Satan wasn't really expecting anything to take place, and we caught him off guard. And he was scrambling, trying to figure out, how do I respond to this thing that's happening? And we're just having the time of our life. And then about a year and a half in, we begin to realize it was like there was more opposition. So I was saying that to some of our intercessors, and they said to me, well, don't be stupid. Thank you. I appreciate that, you know. And they said, you have now gotten Satan's attention. Before that, you were flying under the radar. He, he wasn't aware of you, but now what God's doing, you've gotten the devil's attention. You know, it's one thing to say, you know, I, I want to be walking in such a way with the Lord that when I wake up, when my eyelids start to move, the devil goes, oh, no. You know, he's waking up again. That really sounds good when you say it, but when you're living it and you find the opposition, it doesn't sometimes feel quite the same as when you were preaching it. The opposition said sin, and that's kind of where we were at. You know, that there were people who had their minds made up before we got there as to whether or not something was from God. And then there were some who were looking to us to produce it rather than looking to him. He doesn't share his glory with anybody. But I remember saying at one point in there, probably old latter half of 97 into 98, saying, Lord, begin praying this, God, if there's some place on planet Earth that you're preparing for the dove to land and you can use an American evangelist, my wife and I are volunteers. I had no idea what I was praying. But it was honest. It was what we felt. And I remember saying to the Lord during that season, God, I can't go back. Now, what we had enjoyed before that was not bad. I mean, people sometimes say things like this. We love it when you're coming because of such an anointing on your life. And I was feeling, I don't feel any anointing. I wasn't seeing what I wanted to see. And then we walked into that thing and everything was exploding. And, and I was saying, God, I cannot go back to what it was before. I'll die first. And in fact, I began to pray, God, if, if this is ever going to lift, take me home. Because I just don't want to just go through the routines. I don't want to live with just the memory of what God once did. I've said to him many times, I do not want to spend the rest of my life traveling telling stories of what God did yesterday. I do want to be a part of telling stories of what God's doing right now in our lives. So I was saying that to the Lord and saying, God, if there's some place on planet Earth, and God said, okay. Now, I didn't understand how he's going to work that out. I just, this was my prayer. And, and somebody said to us and. 1999, they said, you need to go to New Zealand with us to attend a cleansing stream event. I said, read my lips. <laughs> I cannot take 14 weeks. That's how long the cleansing stream classes were at that point. So I cannot take 14 weeks off to go someplace to sit in classes. And, and even, if I, even if I could, you know, I, there's no way the budget's going to allow for that sort of. And they said, no, no. We're going to go do the entire 14 weeks in one week's time. And we're going to close it with, uh, with, a, with a, a retreat. And, and you need to go. And I said, yeah, right. 
And uh, right after they're saying this to me, I'm preaching in the suburbs of Chicago. And we'd spent a Saturday evening talking to a man who had shown up at our trailer, this old beat-up car that the rust was holding it together. And we sat outside of our caravan and talked while the mosquitoes ate us up. And after he left, he told me, you know, the sad, sad story of his life and his marriage and the whole mess. When he left, I was thinking, God, what a wasted night. So the next night on Sunday night before the service begins, this man walks up to me and says, God told me to give you this and he hands me an envelope. I just dropped it in my briefcase. Now, to be honest with you, I probably shouldn't tell you this because some of you have probably given me envelopes. But as I've had envelopes given to me with all sorts of stuff in them, <laughs> I've had envelopes given to me with poems that were written that should never, ever see the light of day. <laughs> you know, I, I, and so this, I just dropped it in my briefcase. And after the service, we had missionary friends there, and they want to go get something to eat. And so I said, yeah, let's do that. And so I, I said, well, let me see what's in this envelope. And I I opened it up, and there were 30 $100 bills. The airfare from the U.S. to New Zealand was $3,000. I had just purchased my tickets that week, and God has just provided. I'm standing there rather stunned. It's like I heard God saying, you are going to New Zealand. And so we came to that conference not aware that God was beginning to respond to us saying, God, if there's anywhere on planet Earth that you're preparing to do something. And we had no idea. For most of you, this story would be kind of irrelevant. There's only a handful still in this room who were in the church back then because so many of those have gone to be with the Lord. But there was a season where Pastor Seth said to me, People in the church have said to me, we've never had somebody from outside the nation who understood us like Michael and Linda have. It's like hand in glove. And I said, well, actually, I do. I said, because I grew up in the same atmosphere. I grew up in the same sort of situation, both with the good and the bad of that. And I said, and I understood the heart I said, we made a lot of mistakes, but I understood the heart that was behind it. But by 2004, I was saying, God, you know, 96 was great. And 2000, 2001 was awesome, what you did, the stories. But God, I don't want to live just telling stories of you showing up at a valley in New Zealand. So 2004, I walked into this little Methodist church in southern Illinois. And uh, I remember the first time I visited that church, a friend was preaching. And uh, I was hearing stories, so I drove down to check it out. I like to do that. I opened the car door and got out, and the man just got hit by the presence of God in the car park. Walked into the meeting. It was a great service, and I had some guy giving his testimony, and after the service, the pastor said, come over to my house, and so we did, and we sit down for a, a piece of apple pie, a real American thing to do, and he said to me, well, I said, well, what? He said, is it? I said, uh, is it what? 
He said, Craig, it was Craig Marsh from New Zealand. He said, Craig said to me that when Michael gets here, he can tell you if this is a real move of God or not. Oh, thanks, Craig. I appreciate putting me under pressure. And I said, Pastor, the only thing I can tell you is that God himself has chosen to visit your church. I said, I didn't have to come inside the building to know if God had come. I said, the presence outside, you had come. God had come. By 2008, I said, God, that's wonderful what you did in 2004, but God, I can't live with those stories. And so in 2008, we walked into, actually, we were driving through Levin. We just got back here from the States, and uh, and we're working on the flat, and it wasn't quite done. And so then the most wonderful, sweet, kind, gracious way, they said, could you get lost? (laughs) So my wife and I drove to Palmerston North and got a hotel room for a couple of days just to deal with jet lag. And we're driving through Levin on the way back here, and we stopped to have a cup of coffee with Tony Collis. I'll go ahead and drop names. And... uh, and he had just been asked to serve as the pastor of a church there. And he said to me, well, when can you come preach? I said, Tony, I'm just be honest with you. I don't have anything open on the schedule. I said, I'm booked for the next six months. I said, I've got one Sunday open. I said, it's a week from Sunday. I mean, you don't have time to promote. He said, no, nah, that'll work. <laughs> and so we walked in on that Sunday morning. And God turned up. Some people got saved that morning. And Sunday night, Holy Ghost just fell. And I get this great, I had a picture on an old, an old camera I'd taken of Tony that night laying spread eagle in an aisle, just like this. <laughs> he was as out in the spirit as you could get. We, we drug him to his feet and dropped him in his car. <laughs> and and um, did you drive his car or did I drive his car? I think you drove his car and, and followed me to his house and we drug him out, <laughs> drug him into the house and dropped him on the bed and said to Lynette, he's your problem. <laughs> and 17 hours later, he came out from under and he says to me, uh, can you come back on Friday? 19 weeks later, a couple hundred people giving their lives to Jesus and it was all on. In 2010, I said, you know, Lord, that was really good. But I don't want to spend the rest of my life telling stories about what you did. And so we'd gone back to the States from here to do, a, it was two weeks of family vacation and six weeks of ministry. One of those moments that God begins to drop a hint but doesn't tell you everything. And so we're boarding the plane, and we're sitting down, and I said to my wife, the schedule says that we will be back here in eight weeks, but we won't. I said, I have no idea what that means. She's like, thank you. (laughs) You And we did two weeks of holiday, and and had done five weeks of ministry, and it was good. I mean, I've got got a note from one of those pastors that, 
He said the other night, he goes, you prayed for a lady in our church, and um, she had uh, cancer, I think it was. And they said they took her to the doctor the next day, and he goes, and guess what? He said, I, she said you guessed it. He said the cancer was gone. No cancer. So we were, we were watching God do some fun stuff. And walked into this church in Terre Haute, and um, the third day the pastor said, can you stay another day? And he said, can you stay another day? And then we did the conference in Germany, and this pastor rang me and said, listen, uh, can, you, uh, can you come back and spend another Sunday with us? Now, he didn't tell me what God had been saying to him. See, what God had been saying to him was this, that which you have been praying for on the third service, you'll know. If this is the season for the fulfillment of what you've been asking me. He didn't tell me that. That would have put me under pressure. He just said, can you come? And, uh, and I had that little deal on the inside. And so I, I called some preachers on the South Island where we were scheduled to preach. I said, listen, now this is not going to make any sense at all. But I'm going to ask you for permission to reschedule me. I'm going to ask you to release me from my commitment to be with you so that I can go sit in a church on a Sunday morning. I, I didn't even preach. <laughs> but the pastor said to me, he said, Michael, you have been in more of these type of extended revival services than anybody I know. And I just want your take. And so said these guys, can you? And they said, yeah, we know you. We trust you. If God's saying that to you, you just call us when you get here. Now, that Sunday morning, you didn't really need much discernment. Pastor preached, which he told me later was very intimidating to preach with me sitting in the front row. I thought, you got to be kidding. He waited until after the usual dismissal. How many know that? In most churches, there is a particular dismissal time on Sunday morning, and you don't want to miss that. You know, that's, that's one of the anointing leaves. And so he waited until after the normal time to give an altar call. And when he did give that altar call, about 90% of the 400, whatever it was, people in the service that morning hit the altar. About 2.30, he said to them, we're going to have church tomorrow night. And that started what has now been a 12-year visitation of the Holy Spirit that just simply continues to increase. I want to share this story with you because the Apostle Paul says something I find very interesting in 2 Corinthians. He's, he's talking to the church there about an offering that he's going to receive. And he says to this church, I'm, I'm telling you in advance that we're going to be receiving an offering when we get there. And I want you to be prepared for the offering because when I come, I'm going to be bringing some people with me. And I don't want you to be embarrassed. He also didn't want himself to be embarrassed that you're not ready because I've been bragging about you to them. 
For a number of years, I was a bit hesitant to bring friends from the States to New Zealand. Lest I would bring them and the stories that I've been telling that the reality of what they saw did not measure up to the stories they had heard. It was a fear and trembling. And I, I remember bringing one of those pastors here. And afterwards, he said to me, he said, you know, he said, um, I believe your stories because it was you who told them. He goes, and you have credibility. He goes, but when I sat with those dozen or so pastors that you arranged for us to have coffee or lunch together, and all the only thing you did was introduce us, and then you got quiet, which he said is highly unusual. Thank you. He said, and you just let the conversations go. And I listened to a dozen different pastors tell me the same story without you setting it up. And I began to realize, God, you're doing something in that city. I don't ever want to get close and not quite get there. I don't want to be an, it almost was. Chaplain Robertson out of the Brownsville Revival said to me one day, he said, you know, he said, I think there's a possibility that that church could accomplish what we could not in Pensacola. He said, not just great services, but to actually see the transformation of a city. Can I be straightforward? We're not there yet. God's done some awesome things. And I would tell stories in Terre Haute about what God was doing here. Now, can I stir you up? Because I've watched God do some things there that have blown my mind. Not just in any given service, because I can tell stories of any given service in numbers of places that have just been like, wow, that was, that was awesome. I watched what began largely with, um, this was 12 years ago, so i got to get the right ages. They'd have been largely between 25 to 35 years of age. Those who are being most significantly touched. Pastors said they grew up hearing about what God did, but they hadn't experienced it. Which is an interesting statement because that was already a great church. But he said, but they had begun watching God. It's the little autistic kid. I love watching what God does. It's just strange. This little autistic kid in the church there would, would come down during prayer times and uh, stand up, Linda. Because he's autistic, he could get away with this. He's just a little fella. And we'd be praying for people. Look over, this little kid had walked up to ladies and had his hand. <laughs> it's like, no. You know, I mean, I t I'll tell ladies, I don't lay my hands. 
You know, I said to my wife, you lay your hand that I maybe will touch the back of her hand. This little kid is, <laughs> thank you, Linda. Because here's what was going on. He was seeing fire. And curiosity, he went up and put his hand where the fire was. And when this little autistic kid would put his hand where the fire was, they got healed. Do I understand that? No. I don't comprehend that. Sign and a wonder. As God was doing that through this. And then preachers started showing up. And I can remember when, you know, we'd have five or six preachers show up in a service. I thought, that's wow. And then I got 10 or 15. And 30. And 35. This last conference last two conferences, the pastor there said to me, he said, I believe that God's going to give you not just a message for the conference, but I believe that God's going to give you a prophetic word for the entire outpouring. Now, frequently in their conference, I open it, kind of set the table for the rest of the event, or I will preach on Sunday morning at the close of the conference and kind of wrap it up. He said, this time, no, because I... <laughs> First time he did this, he said, John Kilpatrick's preaching on Friday. You're preaching Saturday morning. Thank you. Nothing like following him. And make it worse. What's her name? The crazy girl. Uh, The worship leader. (laughs) Which one? Lydia. Lydia. Lydia was John Kilpatrick's worship leader. Now she travels with her husband and preached, and she is the crazy woman. And she was preaching after me, and I'm sandwiched between them, thank you. And I'm very much aware that, you know, they didn't come to hear me. She's next. And I'm preaching, and I'm trying to, you know, just, and the pastor says, give the altar call. And when I gave the invitation, I narrowed the focus who could respond? Probably, I want to say 400, 500 in the, that service. When I gave the invitation, I was pinpointing those who were in ministry, five-fold pastors, evangelists, teachers. Now, I'm sure there were some who responded who lied, <laughs> in which case they probably needed to be at the altar. <laughs> but probably 300 responded I was blown away I had no idea in this last conference same thing that more preachers and the impact of the outpouring has become more than just that church you see there in year 12 there's another church it's like year 11 it's so intense at that place it is I think I could would say without exception at this point in time in my life, I've never been in a church prayer meeting with that level of spiritual heat. What's that? Yeah, people go just to be in the prayer meeting. Their pre-service prayer meeting, I've watched them cram. <laughs> They're cram like 50, 60 people into a room about the size of those chairs. You can't, you know, don't worry about falling out in the spirit. There isn't room. If you fall out, they'll just, you'll just be kind of against somebody. But the intensity. Watch, we're there one night. 
during, during a series of meetings, and they're trying to receive the offering. But nobody can get to the offering bucket, which is at the front. And so they've invited people to bring their offering and put it in the bucket. When people get about 10 foot away, they start falling out in the spirit. I mean, nobody can make it. So they're literally stopping and throwing their offering at the bucket. <laughs> they're crawling and launching their... When I first met these people, I thought, Lord, this is a bunch of... I'm trying to think of a polite way of saying this. <laughs> they are an accident looking for a place to happen. They were a bunch of dysfunctional individuals. And I've watched what's happened in that church of dysfunctional people. As they've continued to press in and continued to pursue, they have become, they're a growing church in every dimension. And those dysfunctional people become some of the most anointed, mature individuals as God has continued to, and it doesn't show any signs of getting less. In fact, just got to notice just this week, services this last week, absolutely, once again, as usual. And that's been repeated over and over until it's not just the church where it started and not just that church. There are now, let me, let me try to count. There, there's an entire network now of probably eight or ten churches in the flatland of western Indiana. There isn't anything of any size there. And, uh, and there's probably at least six to eight anyway Churches who are getting together on a regular basis for meetings, and God just keeps showing up. And the two of those key pastors had started attending the outpouring, and God changed their lives. And now others are coming with them, but in their own region now. They, they were doing, did a tent meeting just a few weeks ago, and once again, it exploded. I, I could take you. There, there's a, a church in Fort Wayne, Indiana, is doing a tent meeting right now, this week. I brought that pastor down to the outpouring. I said, you need to go there. The next year, he brought 35 of his people. It's exploding in his church. Southeastern Missouri, I preached there, I don't know, six, seven years ago, whatever it was. And by the third day, it felt like week three. Okay, for those of you who've ever been at extended meetings, my wife and I begin to kind of define something as that's a week one story, that's a week two story, this is a week three story, because when something like that begins to break, the stories begin to change. They start with, you know, people having, they're falling on the ground, you know, it's, it's awesome, the, you know, manifestations, that's how, whoa, wow, cool. And then you start getting the stories of the miracles. But about week three, you start getting the story of changed lives. You start getting the stories of individuals who have had broken relationships. And God's speaking to them to go get a relationship right. To go repent to somebody else. You start getting the stories like this one. 
this, this lady started coming to the service and she had purple hair. And, 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 uh, and she started coming to the services and, and she gets saved. And she goes back to work the next day. They said to her, what happened to you? They said, you are the most difficult person to work with. You have a, I'm just going to say what they said, you have a permanent case of PMS. And they said, but you've changed. And she began to tell them how she had gone to these revival services and Jesus had come into her life. The absolute transformation of who she was. The change in her character. The change in the way that she related to individuals. We begin to say, that's the, that's the stories that I'm listening for. When I begin to see something happening that, see, I love to sing and shout and dance about. And when I was a little younger, I could dance better. <laughs> I'm getting older now, my dance is often more of a shuffle. <laughs> you know, I'm just going to thank you, Jesus, and shuffle <laughs> a bit. I was telling somebody, I was watching this guy dance before the Lord, and I, I said, I was, I was watching him, I said to a preacher, I said, you see that guy? I said, my spirit is doing that. I said, my body is saying, who are you kidding? <laughs> but the story of the life that's been transformed, and knowing that the transformation wasn't because of my great sermon, which disappointed me just a little bit, but it's because they had stood at an altar in his presence until something had happened to them. A change that came by an encounter with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And I'm, I'm thinking of, and so there in, in southeast Missouri, we, we did these by third day, it was like the third week, and so I called, because I was coming to New Zealand at the end of that week, and I I called a friend to say, can you get here tomorrow? He said, do you think I should? I said, yep. So he, he drove down, and I introduced him to the church, and it clicked. And he stayed for the next year. And God did this awesome thing. But you see, when God begins to move, your flesh is going to resist it. And some of the leadership of the church said, you know what, we don't really like this. I'm still trying to figure out, you know, what it is not to like about people getting saved. People getting baptized in the Holy Spirit. And people getting healed and the intense presence of God coming. I'm still trying to figure out what is it about that. But they didn't like it. And so they, um, they asked the pastor to stop. And God spoke to him and said, you don't have to fight this when you can let it go. But God wasn't done with him. And what one church said no to, a whole group began to say yes to. And uh, earlier this year, they, they've been putting together a conference, and, and they wanted me to be there because they kind of said, you're responsible for this whole mess. You know, it began in that church, and now it's spreading to the whole region. This Baptist farmer got baptized in the Holy Spirit. <laughs> he didn't know there's some things you can't do. He's just a Baptist farmer. And he got filled with the Spirit of God. He meets a young lady in the church, and, 
I didn't know this. They just met that week. They started dating. They got married. And this Baptist farmer started going around talking to all of his Baptist friends about the Holy Spirit. Now, please understand, the Baptists in America are not like the Baptists in New Zealand. The Baptists in America are pretty sure that the only thing you can get is get saved. And then that's it. You know, there isn't anything else. You just get, but nobody forgot to tell this Baptist deacon. And so this farmer gets filled with the Holy Spirit. He's telling, and something has lit. And so I was at the conference, and they said, would you preach one night at this thing? And the size blew them away because they weren't expecting that many people to show up. Filled the building, I don't know, three, four, five hundred people in a basically rural area, southeast Missouri, an area where people, it's contentious. I mean, preachers are rivals with each other. You know, it's, uh, and they, they all know about what's going on in the other person's church, and that's not good in their case. And I'm watching God do this thing, and God's been saying things like this. He started saying it through Dick Rubin there years ago. I want to do something that's regional. See, I've said to people, we understand what does it look like when God shows up at a church? Many of you can testify. You know what it's like if God shows up at a church. And we have some idea of what it looks like when God sh shows up in a city. But what about a region? And we're watching this thing. It's not there yet, not totally. But we're watching them accomplish something that now, see, I love to tell the story in the stage just to get them going and tell them about what God's done here and then say to them, you name me a city in the states where this is happening. But now I'm watching God do stuff in the states that I haven't seen here yet. And something regional beginning to happen in this crazy Baptist farmer who does everything wrong. He does. He's like this loose cannon. You know, and it's like, oh, man, don't say that. But he started a prayer meeting just because he was hungry. And others began to come. And ultimately, it led to the establishing of a church in the area. And he's just, just, just going after God. And I could tell you that story in at least half a dozen different places that have all come out of that one outpouring. Because God wants to do more than just touch a church. And we can become very easily satisfied with what God has done among us. When God is saying, I want to make it bigger. Now, one of the things I love is I'm watching God do something in the next generation without us creating it. With, without us manipulating it, us simply recognizing. We have some old prophets in that thing. Um, one, of them, one of them's been here. Remember Fred Aguilar? He's, he's one of our old guys. <laughs> and he has been, God's been using him to raise up young prophets. And he's pouring his life into them, and we're watching them step into and then we got some young evangelists that we had this old guy that 
I used to say when he walked in the room, demons of disease got nervous. Because this, he'd walk into a pre-service prayer time and just say this, Jesus came to my house today. And the first time he said that, you should have watched the people in the room. Like, yeah, right. Jesus came to your house. Uh-huh, sure. But so many times I'd say, Jesus came to my house, and he said that in the service tonight, and it would happen. In fact, he would describe, there'd be nights that God would give him a word of knowledge, and sometimes he was embarrassingly specific. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> there would be nights, he'd be up front, I'd be holding the microphone for him, and, and he'd be sharing what he was sensing, he, what he was hearing. And he would give, he'd give invitations for people with hemorrhoids. <laughs> and describing it. And I'm like, oh, Lord Jesus, help us. <laughs> you know? And, 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 I'm, and he would say some things that, you know, I didn't even say. You know, and he would be, and I'm going, there's no way they're responding to that. And the altars would fill. <laughs> Just, yeah. And one night, one night he says to me, he, we're praying, he says, he, he's called something out. He says, where are they at? I can't see them. I said, they're standing right in front of you. <laughs> Found out later, he was in a fog. Literally, the mist of heaven had descended. And he could see nothing. He could only hear the voice of God in his ear. He said, where are they at? So I finally said to the young staff pastors, just pick his hands up and drop them on people's heads. <laughs> well, now, now I'm watching a couple of young guys who that same thing is transferred to them and they walk in and I think demons of disease oh no it's the next generation this bunch is worse than the last guy in fact my wife said to me she said Michael do you realize that every, and you see fivefold begin to happen now can I get like really really dangerous here we didn't plan that we didn't talk about that, but it happened. In fact, somebody said to me from New Zealand, they said, you know, in New Zealand, we talk about fivefold, and we honor fivefold, we recognize those with fivefold. He said, but I walk in this outpouring, and I watch fivefold happening every service. Because I watched the prophets prophesy, and they modeled how to be prophets, I mean, I'd, I'd look at these guys, they'd get the look. We finally got, so we could just identify, you know, the look had come. And I'd say, you have it work. Yeah, 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 like whatever. And, and and I'd watch as God began raising up young prophets, younger evangelists, younger apostles. In fact, my wife finally said, you know, there's only one person in this outpouring who's not been duplicated. She said, that's you. She said, everybody else, God's duplicated them. She said, you're the only one that has yet to be duplicated, but. She said, that guy right there, he's carrying some of the same stuff you do. In fact, he was preaching that night in the conference, and he's preaching. My wife elbows me. She says, you know, he worded that exactly the way you would have worded that. And after the service, she felt really bold, and she said to him, you know, 
You know that you are carrying some of that same anointing that my husband carries. He said, you know how many times he's thrown his jacket over me as a mantle? And we're watching God raise up smoothly. No jealousy. Smoothly raising up a, another generation that, that honors and they're going further. In fact, one of those who, <laughs> he asked me, he was, he was going to do a conference, and he said to me, can you come to my conference and just do what you do? I'm like, well, what do I do? He said, you know, he said, you just show up at conferences and kind of, can you just? I said, no. I said, I'm going to be in New Zealand. I can't be there. So later I got a phone call from someone who said, you know, said uh, we were sitting in that conference watching him, and we said to each other, you know, He's doing that the way Michael would do that. But I've watched that young man just recently led a team into Alaska, North Pole. And they did a tent meeting at North Pole, Alaska. And people got saved and baptized in the Holy Spirit and healed. And they're baptizing them in a horse trough or something. It looked like a horse trough to me. And lives are being transformed. And I wasn't there. But the next generation was running with it. Because what we did was we didn't just decide, I think I'll make you the next. No, we simply recognized God's hand. And we stood alongside of them. And I stuck a microphone in their hand. And said, uh, go for it. Did they make some mistakes? Oh, yeah. I love one of the lines that one of the older guys, he's an older guy now, he was a young guy then. We were taking a team out of that outpouring to the Philippines. And he says to the team, now listen, when we get to the Philippines, just do what Michael says, and you might live. <laughs> but I've watched what God has done until... My, my wife said at one point to the pastor of that church, she said, you know, everything that you need for revival in your city is in the house. You don't need us. But you need us. But that's changed. Now the truth is they don't need us. In fact, I said to the pastor, I think it's about year three. And I said, I'm not going to call this a prophecy. I said, but the day will come. I said, God's going to be adding other voices to this thing. I said, because it's been my voice to this point, which primarily the voice of the evangelist, although they're calling me the explainer in chief. And they said, because we'll watch God do this stuff in a meeting. We don't have any clue what's going on. And you get up and explain to us what God just did. I was like, oh, okay. But I said, I said, the day will come that people are going to say, well, what, what, whatever happened to that, you know, that couple? Uh, I think, you know, she, she played the keyboard and beautiful voice and sang it. I think she was, what was his name? He said, oh, that'll never happen. And I said, it may. I said, because it's not about us. 
It's about the next generation that God wants to raise up and use them. Because there's a generation. You see, I would like to think that everybody's going to listen to me. But the truth is, as much as I don't like to admit to it, that when I stand to a pulpit now, there are some people that say, oh, yeah, that's an old guy. And there's some people that would just check out. And I hate to, I probably shouldn't, but I'll say this. I have been so graciously received in New Zealand. And I know that in a lot of ways, my personality really doesn't fit because I can be like really, really intense. And sometimes I'm nowhere near as laid back as a good Kiwi should be. <laughs> and, uh, but I have been incredibly well received with a couple of exceptions. And there have been a couple of places that uh, it was communicated pretty clearly. But the reality has been God doesn't need me. But God is looking for people who, having heard the stories of what God has done, will say, God, can you do that? In fact, I said to the Lord one day, we... I had been what I felt was long enough without a significant move. And we are somewhere in central Wisconsin. We're going up to do one night in a church. I'm traveling with a pastor. We had preached a seven-week meeting for where 350 people had gotten saved. And we're driving up, and I'm saying, Lord, can you do it again? Or, Lord, is this just kind of peaked? Is it, can you do it again? Ross, I don't remember what I preached that night. I just remember that when I gave the invitation in, in like three minutes, the entire church was slain in the spirit. God just went. <laughs> He's still looking for people who will let him do it bigger than it's ever happened. I don't want to take people from New Zealand to that outpouring and the outpouring not measure up. And I don't want to bring people from that outpouring here and have them say, I thought you told us there was like really good stuff happening. I want us to encourage each other that the God that we are serving because your story motivated them but can you let their story motivate you? Because God is consistent letting me know, Michael, you're just average. But that which I can do. Linda, why don't you step up here to the keyboard? I have a whole bunch of notes I'm not going to even attempt to tackle. But in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 22 and chapter 23, and you need to read that with one finger in the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah is this little book at the back of the Old Testament. You know that, you know, the list of the minor prophets that you can't pronounce half of their names. And when you read what they say, you wonder why in the world did God put that in his word? For years, I thought it was just to help me to fall asleep at night. That's the only thing I got out of it. 
But a few years ago, I, I, I began to say, God, what is it that causes you to judge a nation? And I decided the study of 66 chapters was way too much for me, so I started with the small, the minor prophets. Zephaniah is written at the same time of 2 Kings 22 and 23. The backdrop is this. Josiah is the king. Now his grandfather was Manasseh, incredibly wicked guy. But his father was Hezekiah. Or his grandfather, one of them. The most godly king that had ever lived to that point. But by the time Josiah arrives on the scene, when you read in 2 Kings 22 and 23, you discover this. The temple's been abandoned. In fact, they have to do an entire building renovation under Josiah because the, the thing was in shambles. The word of God had been totally lost because they discovered the word of God in the temple that they had abandoned. And they bring... They start reading it, and it levels them. They bring the word of God to Josiah, the king, and they begin to read it to him, or he begins to read it, and he begins to tear his clothes because he's so aware of how much they have violated God's word. And they were in a position of being judged. Now, Zephaniah comes at about the same time. You see, Zephaniah is a relative of Josiah. Because when you trace back Zephaniah, his great 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 grandfather was also Hezekiah. So both of these guys go back to this godly king. Josiah is in the line that becomes the king. Zephaniah is in a line that becomes a prophet. Now, it's always interesting trying to piece together Old Testament time frames. Some stuff is really clear, and some of it is a bit more ambiguous. And you know, you're not totally certain, but it appears that Zephaniah was prophesying either just before the revival in Josiah's day, or he was prophesying at the beginning of that revival. It is entirely possible that that revival that Josiah experienced was because of the prophecy of Zephaniah. And when you read Zephaniah chapter 1, it'll curl your hair. It is not fun. Like the second verse, God says, I'm going to consume everything. Well, that's a positive sermon. God says, I'm going to destroy it all. And then he goes on to give a list of four groups of people that are going to be destroyed. He said, those people that are worshiping other gods. He said, those people that are trying to mix religion, syncretism, they're going to be judged. He said, those people that had turned away from the Lord, so the backslider. And then he says, that those people who have never called upon the Lord, the secularist. And he said, all four of those. Listen, guys, everybody I know fits in one of those four categories. And he said, they're all going to be judged. And then he goes on and he says, like in verse 7, I'm going to call a sacrifice, and you are the sacrifice. Oh, that's exciting. It's like God was saying this, I'm going to invite the enemy nations to come, and you're going to be the sacrifice they're going to feast on. 
see, the judgments in the Old Testament are usually parallel to the sins committed. And what was happening in Josiah's day before he became the king was they were no longer offering the sacrifices to God. So God says, since you won't sacrifice, I'll make you the sacrifice. Judgment's coming. And then God begins to describe not those four types, but he begins to describe specific groups. He talks about the princes, which in this case would be those who were uh, on the inner circle in the leadership of the nation, the politicians, the tribal leaders. And God says, I'm going to judge you. And then he specifically says about the children of Josiah that they will come under the judgment of God. And when you read their history in the scripture, everything Zephaniah said about them happened. And it was not pretty. And then he says there's going to come a wailing in the city. And he describes a particular part of the city, which is probably the business community. And he says there that their silver and their gold would be useless. He describes in Zephaniah chapter 1 a, an economic collapse. He describes, he describes a building boom, but nobody living in the houses. He describes a harvest that somebody else is participating in. It's not a very pretty picture. The background of Josiah is also this. When Josiah becomes king, the international scene is this. Assyria has been the primary ruling power for a long time, but they are at the end of their reign. Egypt is vying with Assyria, and right off of the wings is Babylon. And the prophetic word that God gives to Zephaniah basically says to Jerusalem, it's over. But there's this move of God that begins to happen. And in 2 Kings, you get the picture. When Josiah hears the word that Zephaniah gives him, you find Josiah's heart described in verse 2 as a holy heart. You find it described in verse 11 as a, a repentant heart. Down about verse 17, it's a humble heart. And in chapter 23, down about verse 25, it's a committed heart. And because of that, because of what was in Josiah's heart, God breaks into this scene. And I've got to describe this scene just a wee bit more. Because when you go to the 23rd chapter of 2 Kings, it describes this, this moment where the leaders of the nation come together with Josiah and they make a covenant before God. And it describes the types of things that they're going to quit doing. Specifically, he talks about the sin of idolatry. And in that sin, there were three specific things they were practicing. Are you ready for this? The first thing he talks about is the temple prostitutes who are described as male temple prostitutes. Nearly every single scholar We'll be in agreement on this. He's describing a homosexual activity in the temple worship. If this is what was happening in their church gatherings, I have to believe it's affected the rest of society. So as Josiah steps upon the scene, the probability is that sexual aberration has taken place 
in a huge way in their nation. The second thing that in 2 Kings 23 that they put a stop to is child abuse. Specifically, it talks about the offering of the children to Molech, who was a demon entity, a, a, a god. Now, the most horrible description of what was probably happening is the parents were bringing their babies and putting them in on this representation of Moloch, which would be this brass thing that had been heated, and they would set this baby in the arms of that god and start beating the drums to drown out the screams of that little child as that child would be burned to death. Smith's Bible Dictionary concurs that that's what was taking place. Now, a, a slightly less nauseating version suggests that the babies are put to death first and then offered. But both Jeremiah and Ezekiel seem to clearly suggest these babies are being burned alive, and this is what was going on. There was child abuse. Can I say the spirit of Molech is still very active? And whether it's the physical abuse, the emotional abuse, the sexual abuse, or dare I say that abuse that would not even allow a child to be born, an offering unto Moloch, and that was predominant at that time. The third thing that was taking place was witchcraft. And you will find a listing of the various ways that was expressed, whether it was the wizards, but there's just a whole listing. But witchcraft was, again, very predominant. And that is what was taking place in the land when Josiah is becoming king. I don't know about you, but some of that sounds kind of familiar. That you and I are living in a time frame right now that even 20 years ago we would not have believed. I mean, you know, in more recent days in the United States, there was a dispute between a senator who is a spiritual son of a friend of mine who was asking a member of the administration if they could define what a woman was. And she was unable to do so or unwilling to do so. So I said, so we now live in a time, in the States at least, where we can't figure out whether somebody's a male or a female. We live in a time, at least in the States, and I think here as well, that we can't define marriage. We don't know what it is any longer. And we find ourselves living in a very, very confused generation. And in that time, Josiah becomes the king. Now, the pronouncement from God, because when Josiah is reading the word of God, and he understands what's happening, he goes to the prophetess, says, what about this? And she says two things to him. She says that, yeah, this judgment's going to happen. It's over. But because of what God saw in your heart, God would give them one last visitation. And that appears to be what Zephaniah is seeing. Because if you read it that Zephaniah was preaching and revival was coming, you also begin to get the sense that Zephaniah knew it had not gone deep enough yet. 
But there were individuals who, on the surface, they were responding. And on the surface, they responded to Josiah. But as soon as Josiah is gone, within months at the most, the nation has gone back to where they were. And the last gasp is breathed. And Babylon moves in. And Judah ceases to exist. And it's in that atmosphere that Zephaniah, read it, 2 Kings 22, 23, in the three chapters of Zephaniah. Because as I've been studying that, I've been wrestling. Because the parallel between what I read there and what I see in the States and what I see in New Zealand is uncanny. And it scares me in the sense that they reached a point where God said, I'm done. But I'm encouraged with this. But God said, Josiah, because of what I see in you, I'll delay it. It may well be. If Jesus tarries, I can be as patriotic as the next American can be. But there are moments when I read Scripture and I don't see anything in Scripture that paints a clear picture of the nation I grew up in. And it may well be that it's coming to that point that it will cease to be of any significance. But this I do believe, whatever the future holds there, where God will find people like Josiah, the same God that visited Josiah, the same God in the stories that I've been telling you, that same God will say, I'll breathe upon that Josiah heart, and I will spare, and I will sin. In Zephaniah, and I close with this, Zephaniah, by the Spirit of God, gives his own altar call. The first thing he says in Zephaniah chapter 1, left-hand page, right-hand column, right at the top, he says this, shut up. Okay, that's not in the King James or the ESV. I think it says, listen. But here's what God was sending, just shut up. Because he was saying, it's past the time for debate. It's the time for you to listen. There comes a point where God begins to say to people, I'm not going to discuss whether it's right or wrong because I've already declared it. And it's time for you to listen to me. And there comes a point and a time in every one of our lives that God says, what I want you to do is get quiet and listen to me. I was struck again this morning as I was reading Scripture early where it spoke about just this time, but just where the psalmist basically said, God, I, I don't know what to do except to listen. And then the second part of that altar call comes in the second chapter when he says, I want you to assemble together. Something about the coming together for a solemn assembly. And in that second chapter, he says, and when you come together, I want you to seek me. And then it goes on to say, in the seeking, they were to do two things. They were to walk humbly, and they were to return to God. Repentance was to take place. So Zephaniah has his own altar call. He's saying, listen up, get together, and turn away from your sin. And he says, if you'll do that, 
He says, maybe God will hide you when the bad stuff comes. Zephaniah, can't you be a bit more positive than that? Because you see, he was so new by the Spirit, it was over. Let me give you one more. I'm not saying this one out totally, but this one just bothers me, okay? Some places in Scripture that bother me. Jeremiah has a word. For, and Jeremiah, by the way, he prophesied at the same time that Zephaniah did. And in the reign of Josiah. And I've often said, God, please do not give me a Jeremiah ministry. But Jeremiah has an associate named Baruch. And at one point, the word of the Lord to Baruch is this. Don't expect great things for yourself because it's not going to happen. Why? Because it was over. But, God said, but Baruch, in the midst of the captivity that's coming, I will watch over you. That's what Zephaniah was seeing. But even if it was over, God was saying, you're still mine. And if you walk before me, he said, with repentance, walk before me seeking my face, listening to me, I'll hide you. I'll protect you. I will be with you. There were those in Josiah's day who stirred by the messages of Zephaniah were believing that there would be a transformation by force. In fact, Josiah's death occurs in a conflict with Egyptians. Now, the scholars are divided whether Egypt was going up to attack Assyria and Josiah gets involved in the middle of it. Or whether together they're all going against Babylon, but somewhere in there, Josiah dies in the middle of this international incident that's taking place. But God's promise was, if you'll do what I've asked you to do, no matter what happens internationally, I'm going to watch over you. Now, revivalist, we believe God for the glory to come. I believe God for the glory to come that changes nations. But I also have to live with the reality that there comes a point where God says, I'm done. But even if we're in that point, God is still looking for those who will say, I can bless that. I can honor that. And in the midst of God saying it's over, God also sent the greatest revival other than the one in Hezekiah's day, the greatest revival that Judah ever experienced. So I'm not, I'm not negative. I'm very much aware of what's going on around us. I'm very much aware of what's taking place. But in the midst of that, I believe that God is saying, I am going to bring in the greatest harvest you've ever seen. I'm going to move by my spirit and the glory of God is going to come. There will be nations that will repent. And there will be some who will rebel. And I don't know 
which ones will be which. But I know this, my assignment hasn't changed. And neither has yours. And God has been equipping this church and God's been equipping you for a season like this. The great stories, not just to say those are great stories of yesterday. And let's have nights and we sing and shout and we dance about. Let's have nights we are drunk in the Holy Spirit. And let's have nights that we're on our face before God, laying hold of the promises of God. Until God says, I have to visit that city. Not just that church, but I have to visit that city and that nation one more time. Amen. Stand with me, please. You guys have been awesome. Thank you. I've been, I'm looking for the right way of putting this. I really am not negative. I'm a pragmatist. I see where we're at. And I understand if we do not respond, we don't have any hope. If God does not move, the nation I was born in has no hope. And this nation's right behind it. If God does not. But God has positioned you and I to be, and you quoted it again tonight, says, the word that God gave me in year 2000, on our way here, when the Lord said to me on the airplane, I have a message for New Zealand, a word for the nation. And I said to God, I don't do words for nations. I don't have that platform. I don't have that credibility. I just need a sermon for the night. But he said, tell New Zealand to rend their hearts. For if they will rend their hearts, I will open the heavens. And he said to me, tell New Zealand to own their own revival. I said, God, what does that mean? Don't look for somebody else to own it for you. God put you in Hutt Valley. He didn't put somebody else here. He put you here. That means he's given you both the responsibility and the privilege of ownership of what he's going to do in this valley. God put you in this nation at this time. Some of you will travel the world. <laughs> There's a New Zealander right now in the States that I put a schedule together for him. There's another one going over there in a few weeks. I put her schedule together, too, for her. And there's another one that was just in the States, and I introduced him to one of the leaders of the outpouring, and he said uh, that young man and his wife will be coming back. Some of you will travel, but largely God is saying, will you rend your heart 
for your nation? Will you take ownership of the move of God in your nation? Because at the end of the day, nobody else is going to except you. There will be people in other, and, and New Zealanders love it when somebody else around the world that we perceive to be somebody prophesies about what God is going to do in New Zealand. That's great, but can I tell you something? They don't live here. And at the end of the day, they may prophesy it, but God is still going to be looking for a Kiwi who puts his or her hand up and says, right here, Jesus. And God, if you did that for them, you'll do that for me. If you moved in that church, you can move in this church. I want the stories to do two things. I want them to encourage you with the possibilities. He who did will. But I want them to challenge you as well because it's not time to just look back and say, wasn't that cool what God did? It's time to say, God, more than ever. We must have something from you that changes us. I'm as serious as I can be that I want to want to walk into restaurants. I want to walk into stores and people begin to say, what is it? What is it that I feel when you come in here? Holy Spirit, thank you for this group that are here tonight. And Father, I've let time get away from me. Holy Spirit, we're going to be coming together again to seek your face in prayer. Lord, I want you, Father, to so do a work inside the hearts of my brothers and my sisters. That indeed that which you have done will look like we are just in first gear. But you're about to kick it into high. Father, would you raise up some Josiahs who in a very dark time you can use them to transform a society. I want to pray with you tonight. Hear my heart on this. No amount of somebody laying their hands on you will replace the time you spend with the Lord. No amount. I love what God did in my life when Steve Hill laid hands on me. When John Kilpatrick, when Carrie Robertson. But can I tell you, there's a lot of other people that they laid their hands on too. I have family members that lay their hands on them. Superintendent of the Assemblies of God of Indiana was introduced to me one day, and he said, of all the people that I know that went to Brownsville, he said, Michael and Linda perhaps have carried longer that which God did than anybody I know. We're not special. We're average. The pastor's wife in New Zealand said to me, you are not average. I said, 
when the King of kings and Lord of lords says you're average, guess what? You're average. And I said, but God can do incredible things with average. And I don't claim to be any more than average. But Debs, I do know what it's like when in a few moments' time, God changes the atmosphere and He steps in. And I do know there can be something very powerful happen. You lay hands on somebody and that young pastor in the Philippines to this day calls Linda and I mom and dad a revival. I met somebody at Kerry Robertson's funeral. And they walked up to me and they said, you will not know who I am. I didn't. They said, X number of years ago, you spoke at a discipleship camp for college-age students. My fiance and I were in those meetings, and what you shared changed our lives. And we're missionaries today in France because I never knew that. Can I say to you that God, I want to lay hands on you and ask God. But I want you to know right now, if you're waiting just for somebody to lay hands on you and that'll cure everything, forget it. It's not going to happen. My wife and I had to do something with what God was doing inside of us. I had to cooperate with him. I had to take that which was taking place in those meetings. I went back before the Lord. There have been moments God has said to me, you tell me this is what you want to see in your life and ministry, and I'm telling you, if that's going to happen, here's the requirement. Usually it has to do with the time I spend with him. Because you see, there's some things you can't shortcut. Information, now that can be dispensed by anybody. But presence, that's something that's bigger than any one of us. Holy Spirit, I believe there's some people in this room that are so hungry, and I can't do it for them. But you want to touch them. Would you come? She called about the Koshanda Barasike. If you'd like to say to the Lord, Lord, I want to have a Josiah heart. I'd like to pray with you and ask God to do that in your life. If you need to go home, thank you for being here. God bless you. You can feel free to be dismissed. But those who would say, you know, before I leave, I've just got to ask the Lord again for something from him. And I love to lay hands on you and just ask God to transfer, if that's the right word, to take something he's done in my life and make it more in yours. See, one of the words the Lord has given me over the years is there will be others 
In fact, one of the things God said to me, I don't say this very often, but 20-some years ago, he told me there will be people that you will meet. It will be a Barnabas and Saul relationship. When you meet them, you will be the Barnabas, and that Saul will become Paul. I don't want to say this the wrong way. I don't want to sound arrogant or anything like that. Because I don't plan these moments. That's only, this only happened like half a dozen times max. On the old Y.E.D. Crest property, I was walking across the car park one day, and the Spirit of God spoke as clearly to me and said, Seth is one of those Saul's, and he will go farther than you have. And I've watched that. There's been three, four others that God has spoke to me and said, they will. That's what I want. Now, I'm going to say to people, that doesn't mean I'm retired. Doesn't mean I'm done. It means if you're going to go farther, you're going to have to be prepared to do something because I don't intend. I had a superintendent ask me the other day, are you going to retire? I said, I suppose eventually, when nobody wants me to come and preach, I said, but until then, I don't have any plans on it. You know, as long as they'll show up, I'll show up. And we'll see what God does. If this is making sense and there's something in your heart that says, God, that's me. We'll just push some chairs back and we'll invite the Holy Spirit to touch us tonight. Is that okay? And those who have to leave, thank you for coming. I know I'm a little late tonight. Please forgive me. I feel really bad about that for a little bit here. And then in a couple of weeks, I won't care. My wife said to me today, Ross, she said, you know, I'm reaching that point. I just don't care any longer. I just want God to show up. When I become aware that Josiah, Zephaniah, and Jeremiah lived in such a black time, and yet God... When you get to the front, don't wait for me. Just say, here I am, God. Here I am. So if you'd like to be prayed for, don't you just come and gather in at the front.